Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Some 20 million previously uninsured Americans have obtained health insurance as a result of the Affordable Care Act. One of the goals of the ACA was for the newly insured to go to the doctor and seek preventive care. But just because a person has insurance doesn't mean their health issues have been solved. There's much more to it, especially for those living in poverty or have other challenges in their lives. Community health centers was a concept that was designed to help the most vulnerable. Today, we discuss the challenges beyond insurance. Joining us is Family First Community Health Center CEO Jenny Englerth. Ms. Englerth, welcome to the program. Good morning. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Before we get into some of these challenges that many of your patients are are facing, let's talk about community health centers. How would you describe a community health center? What are community health centers? A community health center is a nonprofit healthcare provider that is located either in urban or rural areas that are specifically designated as medically underserved, or meaning that um, uh, for whatever reasons there's clustering of great need in that area. So the health center is aligned with areas of greatest need. We all share a mission across the country of ensuring that uh, we focus on access at a local level to primary care, medical, dental, and supportive services, uh, again, for those that need it most. Mm -hmm. How many community health centers are there across the country? There are over 5,000, and many of those have multiple sites. So um, we make a significant contribution, and really in this country, um, offer the only federally uh, supported construct for the delivery of primary care in the nation. It's a relatively new concept, right? We are just over 50 years old. Really? We, See, I, I don't know. It, it seems as though it's getting more, it's, uh, community health centers have gotten more attention. Maybe it's because looking at uh, the most vulnerable people out there or maybe because we focused so much on health care over the last uh, five to ten years or so. But i, I got to tell you, 5,000, I didn't realize there were that many and didn't realize that community health centers, that the concept has been there for so long. Now, you mentioned multiple offices. You have six. You're mm-hmm. based in York County, family first. You have six. Uh, mostly in your county, but you do have Adams County as well, right, in Gettysburg? Uh, absolutely. In Gettysburg, Hanover, and actually in Lancaster County in uh, the borough of Columbia. Oh, I didn't realize you were in Columbia, too. So uh, you, one of the things that uh, you do is uh, you provide services regardless of a patient's ability to pay. So with that in mind, The Affordable Care Act, as I mentioned in the introduction, has created, was given insurance to 20 million Americans and I'm sure hundreds if not thousands in in our area as well. So what has your observation been since we have this large number of newly insured people? We've certainly seen many of our patients directly benefit. Uh, Even though we've, uh, for over 40 years, had a construct of delivering care, uh, regardless of ability to pay, as you've said, um, and having an insurance card matters. So we may have been able to provide access, but maybe there were specialists or um, other elements of healthcare that continue to be problematic for our patients. So uh, we have seen an incredible 
uh, number of newly insured individuals since uh, the ACA, and whether that was through marketplace plans or through the expansion of Medicaid. Um, our particular patient population has been most impacted by the expansion of Medicaid, so seeing those income limits increase slightly um, to provide coverage to um, more of the working poor or moderate income families in our community. Well, you know, I guess uh, the bottom line uh, question for, because I know this is something that uh, as a community that, you know, something that's based in the community that you're most concerned with. Since the ACA, and there are more people coming in because they do have an insurance card, is the community healthier? Well, I think it's uh, very early to make that declaration. So, and that's one of my biggest uh, fears or apprehensions based on where we sit right now with the level of uncertainty about how some of this, uh, the elements of the ACA are either going to continue, not, or be shifted or changed, is that we're very early on in this process. And what we saw was um, many people accessing care for the first time in many years, and whether that was medical care dental uh, or dental care, we um, we had some catch-up work to do. We had some work with folks who had maybe been not aware of some of their um, conditions, maybe some high blood pressure or moderate blood pressure or risk for diabetes um, or some, uh, um, you know, tooth work that needed to be taken care of. And so, um, but what we've seen is an uptick in access. So people seeking preventative services. And um, what we know is if those preventative services continue to be aligned with people that need them most, will prevent more serious and more costly illnesses down the road. So if we're able to better manage somebody's blood pressure today, uh, they're much less likely to have a heart attack or have some catastrophic uh, impact later in their life. And um, so change in healthcare is really um, incremental and long-term. And so we see people accessing care more. We have seen the ability to identify conditions earlier on for people. Um, are people healthier? Uh, I think that if we're able to continue down this path, all of the indicators would tell me that our community will be healthier. What you just described, though, is something that has been a bit of a disappointment for some. And let's face it, whenever we're talking about this, there are politics involved as, as well. Mm -hmm. Some have looked at it, pointed to uh, this and said, see, it, it, it really hasn't made us much healthier. But something you said, which has, I think, surprised a lot of people, is that we had a lot of sick people out there. And when you say that we were catching up, there were a lot of people out there who maybe had not been to a doctor, had not seen a healthcare professional in years, and then once they got insurance and they went to, you know, they, they came to you or they went to a doctor, that they were they were catching up. So, you know, when you said, I don't think we've, it, you know, it's been in place long enough. You know, again, I know that there's probably people out there saying, well, what do you mean? It's been five years now. How haven't we caught up? So. I mean, I think that says a lot about the health of the nation when we had so many sick people out there. Absolutely. And what we um, do tend to look towards are those indicators of health or lack of health. So we look at high levels of, of poverty, which correlate to health. We look at rates of obesity, the types of food that we eat, um, and our engagement in primary care. 
All of those things tell us, particularly in the region that we live in, that we're not apt to be pretty healthy. So this idea that when I look in the mirror and feel okay today, that everything's okay, is a false sense of security. And that's where real engagement with primary care, understanding blood pressure, risk for diabetes, um, all kinds of other things um, are so important. And so we are not necessarily the healthiest, healthiest area, and we're not necessarily the healthiest country in the world. And so this long-term engagement with primary care is what we've seen around the world really drives strong community health. And we really have just started paying attention to it. So um, I do think there's a lot of hope in the millennial generation, uh, they have uh, tend to have a different mindset about um, health, personal uh, engagement in health, and uh, that certainly my generation didn't benefit from. And so um, if we're able to match delivery systems and the expertise of healthcare providers with a different mindset, we're likely, and continued access to things like insurance and addressing affordability, we're likely to see a healthier generation come behind us. What's ironic about uh, the millennials, though, is that one of the reasons that uh, we hear that insurance premiums have gone up is not as many young people have signed up for insurance that they were, they, their thinking was, okay, I'm healthy, I really don't want to pay this uh, amount every month, and I'm going to take my chances and, and not get health insurance. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, some of the other challenges that your patients face. But one more uh, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare question. If it is repealed and there is not a similar replacement, what do you see coming down the road? I see, uh, first, I see individual impact of that. So the person that was starting to move down the road to improved health, starting to become engaged with health care, I see that coming to a screeching halt. Uh, uh, access is, is really driven in many ways by affordability. And so if people uh, have real or perceived barriers due to finances, especially in our ruggedly independent German-rooted ge geography, um, we'll, we'll kind of go it without. Um, and so uh, what we know is that uh, we can ignore health issues today, but they'll catch up with us no matter what. So um, what we'll do is just push those expenses and push that personal impact. So time off work, negative impact on family, and ultimately, a quality of life, we'll just push that down the road. And um, there'll be a cost for that that maybe we won't see in this administration, but we will pay for it at a societal level uh, down the road. Uh, the second kind of part two to that uh, question is the impact on providers. Uh, the um, the way that we deliver health care in this country is largely based on having uh, financially viable uh, provider networks to deliver care. And um, those are not necessarily why, why in this area we benefit from some relatively financially healthy provider organizations. These are not organizations operating with huge margins. And so to have um, a dramatic shift again in the financing of health care can limit access, could limit our ability to continue to improve the services that are offered um, as far as uh, technological advancements, delivery sites in areas uh, in our more sparsely populated areas of our region. All of that takes um, a financing structure that works from a provider perspective that allows those providers that really want to 
do good work with their patients um, to be employed and, and, and be connected. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program is Family First Community Health Center CEO Jenny Englerth. We're talking about some of the challenges beyond insurance or lack of insurance uh, having to do with uh, access to health care, staying healthy, a healthy community. Uh, a lot of it has to do with um, fi- finances. Talk about that in just a moment. You're listening uh, to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Our phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also, on Twitter, we are at smarttalk at WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Let's take a phone call now from Bill in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. Hi. I was listening to a woman who I believe said was Mannheim Township uh, on the program before you came on. And she have ran a company, and she said she bought her own health insurance, and she was proud of it. And, you know, I've been thinking about a lot of this nonsense and baloney that's been going on. And what occurs to me is I've never had a fire. Nobody has ever broken into my house. I don't want to pay for the fire department and the police department. Why should I have to pay for that? And when the fire department comes then, they'll say, we're here to help you cash, check, or credit card. So your point is, I mean, we kind of had this discussion earlier in the week when we were talking about uh, where we are with uh, the ACA, that uh, insurance is just that. It's for that day when you need it. Well, a little more than that. This is a society that we live in, and the society is for the good of the majority. And everybody contributes to fire and police and something like that, so that the prices of these services aren't astronomical. The same thing should be for health care. Everybody is entitled to be healthy and to have the uh, care that they need to do that. And therefore, in a society, everybody pays into that. Mm-hmm. All right, Bill, thank you very much for your call. It's kind of a, I don't know if you want to address that or not, but uh, it's more of an insurance uh, question or comment, uh, more so than uh, having to talk about uh, community health centers and and. Uh, you know, the challenges that we face. But, okay, so let's get on to some of those challenges. Health insurance obviously was a big one. It was a big hurdle for many, many people in having access to health care. But what may surprise a lot of other people is that there are challenges beyond just having insurance. You see this with some of your patients or would-be patients. What are some of those challenges? Uh, there are many challenges that people face that that choose to come to our health center and more challenges for those that are living in the community that have not accessed primary care. Uh, They can be everything from transportation to a lack of understanding of the the healthcare system and kind of which door to enter and how to do it. It can be fear-based. There are certainly stigmas that exist and, and sometimes people feel that Um, interestingly, that they have too many problems, that there's too much going on for them, um, and how would they ever even start that conversation with a healthcare provider? People 
can be just simply overwhelmed with their day-to-day lives in a way that doesn't allow them to step back and say, I can take care of myself, and this might be a step to do that. We often see that with uh, families that are accessing care for their children because they do want to do that, and, and they bring the child. And one of the great things about a community health center and a family medicine approach in general is that over time, as we build that relationship, we're able to ask mom or dad, so where do you go to the doctor? And when were you last seen? And and how are you? And, and hey, we could be your doctor. And uh, there is an amazing amount of times where people say, really? And I haven't thought about it. And I'm a little afraid, or I don't know how I could pay for it. And in our health center and other health centers like ours, we're able to address each of those things so that people can feel comfortable coming in the door. All right, transportation. We'll deal with maybe not everyone one by one, but some of these. Transportation. You know, you would think in this day and age with mass transit, especially, okay, now not all areas have uh, access to mass transit, uh, a ride from a friend, a family member, that that would not be a major issue. It is? It continues to be, and and what we're trying to do in our community is um, working with our uh, transportation provider and with other folks in the community um, get more and more specific about what that transportation need looks like. It's something we hear from our patients a lot, but we need to drill down as much as possible so that we understand what the root cause is. Um, we do know we have a bus system. We do know that Medicaid, uh, for those that have that as a form of insurance, provides some costs for rides. But in the way that the system's created, maybe there's some barriers. Uh, transportation routes in a city like York are not uh, quick and easy. So uh, one of our patients who's coming for a visit may need to be dropped off 45 minutes before their visit if they're coming on the bus and be picked up an hour or two after they're done just in the way the routes run. Yeah, and if I'm not real sick, I'm not doing that. Absolutely. Everybody has uh, obligations and things to do in their life. And even if we extend hours into the evening or early morning, as as we do at our health centers, uh, people don't have three, four hours to devote to coming to a doctor's appointment. What about uh, taking off work? I mean, there are many people who, uh, even if they are below the poverty line, that uh, they have a job, maybe if if it's even part time, but they don't want to take a chance of losing their job or they just can't. They can't take the time off work. Absolutely. We hear that as a frequent barrier for our patient population. A majority of our patients are employed and often employed at multiple part-time jobs. And that presents a special challenge. Either shift work or those multiple part-time jobs have um, hours and schedules that are really not very friendly to stepping out in the middle of the day to a doctor's appointment. And in many ways, that's the way our traditional medical delivery system has been designed. So we can do things like extend hours, but there are still folks that are going to have a struggle. Uh, They know that if uh, they uh, miss work or step away from work, that in many of the uh, employers that they work for, uh, their jobs will be in jeopardy. And Uh, every day they're going to choose their job and the ability to sustain their family over coming to the doctor. So what can you do about it? You mentioned extended hours, but what can you do about that? Well, we can start with access, but more importantly, we can work with employers in our community. Particularly in Adams County, we've had some success at working with employers in providing some services on site for them. So maybe going into a facility uh, that has, you know, 24-hour operation and some pretty stringent attendance policies and doing some things like blood pressure checks and um, education for their patient or for their employees. 
But it's as important to educate the employer. There are millions of days uh, lost in this country to work, uh, millions of work days lost in this country uh, to mental health issues, to illness in general. And a healthier workforce will produce a better product for the employer. And again, it's maybe a longer term investment. Uh, so it's the short run of today, my employee has to leave for half the day to go to a doctor's appointment, um, but they're going to be healthier and be more productive for me in the future. So it's educating employers and helping them think through some of those trade-offs. And we have some exemplary employers in our region. We also have employers that are still really struggling to find that balance. You mentioned fear. I've heard this from people that I know, and these are even from some people who have good insurance or, you know, a steady job and, you know, that they've worked somewhere for a long time, that I don't want to know. You know, I, I feel pretty good. You know, I have a cold now and then, but uh, if there's anything major, I don't want to disrupt my lifestyle. I don't want to disrupt um, my my job. Uh, to maybe have to take off if there there was something beyond just uh, you know that cold or that that simple diagnosis. Are there people? A lot of people out there who say, you know what? I don't want to know. Uh, denial is a beautiful place for some people. <laughs> and uh, we hear that on a regular basis. And sometimes that fear comes from um, perceptions about uh, how someone might be treated. And sometimes that fear and, and the that living in that place of denial comes from that I'll deal with it another day. I have more pressing issues today. I'll push it down the road. Uh, and as a society, we've kind of supported that. Our American culture really tells us to do as much as we can today, work as hard as we can, um, um, achieve as much as we can and do it at a pace that isn't always the healthiest for all of us. Uh, sometimes people who do take that break and engage in, in health care and do those kinds of things that are going to help in the long run are, are even kind of shunned for that. The taking off work to go to the doctor's appointment. Yeah, may you not must be weak. Something. You know, there's someone afraid that someone, maybe not, but afraid that someone will think, well, you're weak. There's nothing wrong with you. Absolutely. So um, that's a mindset that we all have to address in ourselves so that collectively we see a change and value in prevention. So that uh, taking time to take care of ourselves and our family, and whether that's coming to a doctor's appointment or taking a walk or just stepping away and taking a break, is something that we value and hold up as something that will make us as a community and overall as a country stronger and not weaker. You know, I want to pull back for just a moment. I said we were done talking about the Affordable Care Act, but and I don't know whether your patients face, face this or not, uh, but one of the reasons you hear uh, a lot of people say, I'm, I'm not going to the doctor or I'm not going to have this checkup and whatever, is the high deductibles. Do you run into that? We absolutely do. And we've certainly seen, even prior to the Affordable Care Act, most certainly prior to the Affordable Care Act, shifts in the way that insurance has been constructed and a, certainly a leaning towards more high deductible plans. As an employer ourselves, um, we've had to reconstruct the way we deliver um, or offer the benefit plan to our employees that's included a high deductible plan. Some of the uh, advantages we have as a community health center is we can still discount care. So we discount care um, based on income, not based on insurance. So if someone is low income, doesn't matter what insurance they have, anything that would be expected out of pocket, we can discount. So that's a really beautiful uh, advantage that we have. But the high deductible plan poses a lot of issues for people. And again, often instead of um, 
bringing those issues to their health care provider and asking the question and raising the concern about payment, people just stay away. So they just say, I've got a $2,500, $5,000, $10,000 deductible. Um, I'm just going to go it alone, and I'll wait and see what happens. I'll roll the dice. Uh, what we know is that that rolling the dice is going to create a more significant consequence down the road. So what I would encourage and, and encourage on a regular basis in our community is have a conversation with your provider, be it a community health center or whatever provider you're engaged with. Have a conversation about your struggles and your challenges as far as managing high deductibles or any other financial aspect of care. Uh, I think that you'll be pleasantly surprised about what you hear. Providers want to see their patients be healthier, and providers, primary care providers in particular, recognize the value of what they do in keeping people healthy longer. And we know that the payment system will catch up at some point in time to that way of thinking. We have an email from Cynthia. It says, uh, it doesn't matter how many health centers we have or the coverage of health insurance. All you have to do is stand by any checkout counter in any grocery store and see what people are eating. That will show exactly the problems of poor health in this country. I know this is something that you deal with is education about nutrition. Talk about that. So specifically, we bake into the way that we deliver services uh, from a preventative perspective, a lot of education and specific expertise, dietitians and nutritionists, to help our patients better understand the choices that they're making nutritionally. I will also say that there are many barriers to eating healthy, particularly for low-income folks, access being one of them. Um, in our community, and it's reflected nationally as well, access to fresh foods and produce is not as accessible in low-income communities as it is to other folks um, in the broader community. And there's a different cost factor. I had a, a dietitian say to me years ago, well, if you if you cost out per nutrient, healthy foods versus non-healthy mm. foods, Who's the cost that is... <laughs> and I said, you know, I think that's a great argument, but it's not going to play with anybody. <laughs> so education's important, uh, but we also have to recognize that this isn't a low-income issue. This is an everybody issue. We all could do a better job eating more locally, healthy um, more local healthy foods, but we all, again, live in that fast-paced life that I was talking about. And uh, as consumers, we've really been given uh, a package around our nutrition that is easy and quick for us and not necessarily the healthiest. And it's going to take uh, long-term systemic work to kind of turn the tide on how we eat as a country. Mm. Do you find that uh, that is, okay, now we know there are some of the hurdles you just described, but are there many people who are not educated as to good nutrition? You know, I think basically what we find is that people have a decent sense. There may be nuances that, that they don't understand, particularly, you know, one of the things that, that we focus on is salt intake. Uh, reducing salt intake is one of the uh, best things that individuals can do to, uh, to help their heart, and that helps everything. So there can be some nuances. People perceive something as having less salt that doesn't. But the nuances of that education, uh, while important, in general, we understand the general direction. Of, of eating healthy. It's putting those behavioral habits in place uh, wherever we sit on the, um, the spectrum of, of uh, station of life that we struggle with. I want to. We only have a few minutes left, and I want to try to get to as much as I can. Uh, Thomas uh, sent us an email. What do you recommend for someone who simply cannot afford our health insurance? 
So we certainly have worked with individuals. And uh, first of all, I would say to um, reach out to someone who can help you uh, work through that. All community health centers, as well as other sources and communities, uh, have folks that can help you navigate the choices around health insurance. There may be a public option that you're not aware of, or there may be different options. And then secondly, I would say, talk to your health care provider directly. Um, if you do find that plans are just unaffordable, talk to your health care provider about discounts and ways to manage the cost of care. But seeking one of those navigators um, that do still exist under the market place that can talk to you about all kinds of things would be a great place to start. One final topic I wanted to bring up, you touched on this, but I wanted to talk about it a little bit more, and that is access to mental health services. I mean, this is not just an issue for people who are living below the poverty line, who are poor. I mean, this is an issue for our whole society that there just is not, uh, there just are not enough uh, healthcare provider, mental health care providers out there for the number of people who could use them, who could, who need them. Talk about that, what you do with Family First when someone requests or needs uh, mental uh, health services. We are, as a, as a broad society, as you said, pretty stressed and depressed. And particularly in our health center, we've seen over the years that while primary care providers are trained in treating depression, anxiety, and all kinds of other things, uh, that we need a more team-based approach. We need folks with specific expertise. And so we've really enhanced our team. We've also, we also screen all patients for depression. It's kind of the root cause of many health issues. And folks may be uh, dealing with depression and have no clue that they are. So screening for depression is something that we've incorporated and we've added uh, licensed social workers and other other expertise to our teams so that uh, we can have the full breadth of services in a place that people may find easier to access, less stigma, um, and, and just uh, more coordinated with their primary medical care. Is stigma a big issue? Stigma continues to be a big issue, and that's something that we push up against all the time in this area. Um, I thought it was interesting earlier in the segment that uh, one of the women said that, uh, in another segment, said that she would never need mental health services, and so she didn't want to pay for those. Um, we find that mental health issues, be they situational or long-term, exist uh, for so many people. And the more that we can talk about that and accept that that's uh, part of the ups and downs and ebbs and flows of our life and uh, match those accordingly with professionals, the overall health of the community will be improved. Jenny Englerth is the CEO of Family First Community Health Centers based in York County. Jenny, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Today's program is part of WITS Transforming Health Project. To learn more, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care, check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system. Online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. You're listening to WITF Smart Talk, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Yeah, I just wanted to remind you that uh, WITF Smart Talk is on the road tomorrow. Our road trip takes us to the Garden Show, the Pennsylvania Garden Show in York. And uh, you are able to watch the live broadcast. We'd love to see you out there. Uh, we encourage you to go to WITF.org, our website, and register to come out. Uh, not just see Smart Talk, but then uh, take a walk around the Garden Show. Uh, you know, after yesterday's 70-degree temperatures, and now we're into high winds, cold, maybe even a little bit of snow later tonight.
uh, we still could use that uh, look forward to spring. And I think the Garden Show would help to help you uh, get in the mood for that. I know I'm looking forward to it. Last month, Governor Tom Wolf proposed a $31.3 billion state budget. A month later, we're in the midst of budget hearings in the legislature. The different state departments testify to their financial needs. And if there is a running thread this year, almost everyone says they need more money than is proposed. WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer has covered the hearings, and she is with us today. Katie, welcome back to the program. Hello, Scott. What's up? 1-800-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2
in uh, I mean it's hard to describe than other anything other than political governor's office uh, said there would have to be layoffs of people in the unemployment compensation call centers uh, Republicans said hey we're not giving that money because uh, you know we provided millions before and nothing happened you know that's kind of the thumbnail version of this but one thing that Secretary Mandarino pointed out yesterday is that uh, now people who have lost their jobs and are applying for unemployment, where they waited for just a few minutes, are waiting much longer. Talk about that. Sure. So that's true. Um, the Unemployment Compensation Office got rid of or furloughed about 500 employees when they got this you know, funding, not cut, but non-extension. And so what happens then is that there are less people to operate the phone and less people just on the you know administrative end generally so call waiting times have gone up in January they were at their highest and they could be on people could be on the phone for anywhere from like two to five hours I think two is like the the mean time right now but the uh, those t- call waiting times used to be 10 minutes or so and that's one of the things that secretary Mandarino did bring up a lot in these hearings is that when the four-year funding stream was originally allocated it gave 178 million dollars over four years and it started under Governor Corbett, the previous administration, um, it was earmarked for technological improvements, which haven't happened yet for various reasons, and decreasing call waiting times, which she says, well, we hit that out of the park. <laughs> so, um, and that's true, and legislators don't deny that at all. But the question is, and there, it gets very complicated because there was a contract with IBM that fell through because it went way over budget and was way behind schedule, and so they canceled it, and a lot of money was lost there. And again, that was under the previous administration. Administration, so that was before Mandarino took over. Um, but they're saying, listen, Republican lawmakers are saying, listen, we, I mean, we fed this money in and we haven't gotten this out. And they say, Mandarino, that uh, they're well, they're looking into an additional contract and they, you know, they wanted to do it right. And so it's just they're sort of a they're not seeing eye to eye on what the priorities should have been. Well, I mean, there there are a few. You can look at a few priorities. Number one. Uh, the people who have lost their jobs and are rightly entitled to unemployment compensation. I mean, you're feeling bad enough that you've lost your job, you're feeling insecure, you're wondering, okay, how are we going to continue to live? And you have to wait on the phone for two hours to five hours? I mean, so I would think Five might be a little bit of an outlier, but but still, two hours was still... If I have to wait ten minutes, like you 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 said earlier, which is normal, I get to be impatient. Now, most of the, it wasn't for unemployment compensation, but if I'm waiting for the cable company, you know, your wait is now nine minutes. Right. You know, maybe I just need a little more patience. But still, I would think that those people would be the priority. And back in December, when these layoffs occurred, we were told that uh, Republicans said, "Okay, we will handle this once we return in January." Well, now we're in March. Why hasn't anything been done with it? Yeah, so there's a few different things going on here. And by the way, I will say Republicans don't deny that something has to be done about this situation. They say a fix has to happen, but whether, you know, it's a long-term funding stream being reallocated by the state or some other solution, 
we haven't come to that consensus yet. But and one of the can reasons I for just one second sure. is, it, it is that Republicans also say the governor can make this happen today. That was always the Republican argument. Yes. Um, and they say we just don't have the money for it. But one of the reasons it's been delayed until now and will be delayed further probably is that there's an investigation going on um, and more of an audit from the auditor general's office to look at how the money was spent over the four years that the UC system got funding. And it's also looking into mistakes that were made under the previous administration, the Corbett administration, where the state lost out on about $20 million in federal funding, which, you know, the state says may be recoverable. Mandarino says maybe not. Um, but a lot of different components they're looking into. So we're not likely to see a clear decision until that report comes out sometime in April. All right. Uh, Daphne in Camp Hill has something not necessarily related to hearings, although um, I guess it can be. <laughs> Daphne, you were on the air. Good morning. I'm talking, you know, you, you said uh, how much uh, people are being laid off, how many people are being laid off because they don't have money to pay them. And then when I heard a few days ago how much, how many millions of dollars were spent on Kathleen Kane's hearings and court situations, it just doesn't make sense that, that they would spend that much money on something like that from our tax money. I mean, it just seems so ridiculous to me to spend that kind of money on, on hearings like that. Thank you very much for your call, Daphne. The point that Daphne raises is one that maybe every single taxpayer in Pennsylvania has, uh, in and that is priorities. Sure. And it's the same thing the legislature is dealing with. It's the same thing that these department heads are dealing with, is that everyone has their own set of priorities, and that's why these hearings are so important. But when you do hear how much the states, how much was it? Do you know? Do you have that at the top of your head that was spent on the Kane uh, defense? Oof, not off the top of my head I, I right now. I want to say it was but... 1.8 million. Dollars, it was quite a lot of money. Yeah, and and I don't think that even counts. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, 1.8 million is no, really not that much I, in state I, dollars. I hate to say that, but still, it's, it's true. One point it's when, true. But every dollar a, counts when we're in a tight budget. Uh, so yeah, I think that uh, you know, if I could take a moment to put on my civics hat, that's why you let your legislators know, your representatives know where your spending priorities Absolutely. are. Absolutely. All right, you mentioned to me. Uh, as we were, you know, talking about this show today, that the, the the common thread was that everyone, all the department heads that came in to the legislators, uh, to the committees, uh, their budget hearings, wanted more money than what was allocated or what was proposed. So. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, that would not seem to be unusual. I think no, that... it's not unusual. And that's sort of like almost, I think, an obvious thing when right, you come right, in. Everybody right. wants more money. Everybody wants stuff for their priorities. But there are um, department heads that are coming in and saying, listen, we can't really do very much with what we've got right now. I think a good example of that is the state system of higher education right okay, now. Okay, let's talk about that. Yes. Yeah. So um, the PASHI system, they were given $8.9 million under Wolf's most recent um, uh, budget proposal. And... Um, they're saying that basically, like, they've had falling enrollment for the past six years. I think they've lost um, 12% of students since 2010. So that's significant. And, they're, uh, and some schools are doing well, and there are 14 schools across the state. Some are not doing well. And the chancellor, um, Frank Brogan, when he came in uh, before the assembly, basically said, listen, we have some schools that um, will be completely out of money by next summer. So not summer 2017, but 2018, if nothing is done. So he's talking like current funding. And he's saying, obviously, $8.9 million. Like, thank you, but that's not going to do it. It's not going to help our entire state system of higher education. So he was more, I mean, I don't think they're going to get more money. There's just not a lot in the education spending that's going to go there. But um, 
He's saying, look, they're undertaking, you know, an investigation into how they can increase enrollment, that sort of thing. So you see a lot of departments doing that. You see a lot of internal audits to see, you know, where money can come from and how they can improve. And so that's been very common in these hearings. Yeah. Frank Brogan, the chancellor chancellor of the state system of higher education, was on our show Mm -hmm. uh, before his hearing. And uh, that was, you know, he, he told us about that, too. But he also said that closing schools or merging schools would be a last priority. Sure. But when you hear $8.9 million, I mean, one of the things that he points out is that Pennsylvania, even though these are state-owned universities, that uh, Pennsylvania provides one of the lowest allocations from the state for the state universities compared with with other states. And they're also being hurt by rising pension costs. Their pensions have uh, the the amount that they're required by the state to pay into the pension debts because their you know, retired professors get pensions from the state. It's risen astronomically in the last six or seven years. What a segue. What a segue. <laughs> <laughs> pensions, well, pensions, let's pensions. Let's talk about pensions. Yes. <laughs> that is something that, uh, again, you covered uh, within the past week. Tell us about that. All right. Pensions, this is going to be one of the big issues that we come back to again and again, and we have been doing this for the past several years. But basically, uh, so we did have a hearing with SERS, which is the State Employee Retirement System, and PSERS, which is the Public School Employee Retirement System. Those are the two big systems where we're paying into pension dollars. And what happened, just to give you a quick overview, if you don't know already somehow, um, is that uh, you know in the early 2000s, 2002, 2003, the legislature gave themselves and state employees a pension increase. And this didn't go totally funded for a couple of years, and then the economy crashed. And that put us in a very bad financial in, state that's for right, paying Investments didn't come back. Yeah. Investments didn't come back. Investments are still low. So we're looking at you know the state and the IFO have different um, uh, projections for how much pension debt we actually have, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to $70 billion with a B. And so that's big. That's a lot of money we have to pay back, and that's over the next 30 years, but it's still a big chunk of change. And so this year, we Governor Wolf and his budget um, proposal did include money, the actuarially required amount is what they call it, um, to pay down that debt. Now, that's a good step. Lawmakers and the pension funds are very happy about that. But they say, I mean, they don't have a dedicated funding stream for it. You know, these are just appropriations that are going to happen year by year. And they're worried that it might not be sustainable, that the state may not keep making its pension you know, requirements under different administrations over the next, again, 30 years, this has to happen. So um, there's a lot of questions about that. Lawmakers, Governor Wolf didn't include a pension fix in his budget, which made some Republicans mad, but uh, they're working and then they have been to, you know, come up with a better solution, a better system to fix this issue. But nothing has passed in the last few years. Um, one of the things that they've been trying to do is, you know, restructure the pension system even more so that uh, it's cheaper, you know, for them going forward. They already did that in 2010. They did, you know, they knocked down the pension. So new employees don't get those super lucrative pensions anymore, which saves the state some money, but they still have lots and lots of employees that are still in the system that they have to pay those full pensions to. Otherwise, you know, they can incur a lot of legal um, situations. Well, constitutionally, they must do that. That's Constitutionally, they must do that. And sometimes now and then people 
people suggest, well, what if we changed, you know, didn't pay out the full, because that happens in the private sector a lot. Right. You know, when people, you know, a company loses money, so suddenly people don't get their pensions. But the state doesn't want to do that. They haven't really gotten to that point yet, but they're still trying to figure out how to decrease the load that they're carrying. And what we heard from SIRS and PSIRS was that, you know, you're not going to get a whole lot more savings by, again, restructuring the system. Something They've talked about going to a 401k-style plan. They've talked about going to graded pension systems for various employees. But uh, I think the consensus from the two funds was that, listen, you have to figure out a way to pay for this. It has to happen at some point. And you're not going to get a whole lot more savings by you know doing a 401k plan. And, and that debt doesn't go down. That I mean, doesn't go down. That debt is not going down. <laughs> the debt doesn't really go anywhere. And so they've been trying. I mean, it can fluctuate a little bit because of return on investment. So right, they've been focusing right. on you know how m- much they're getting back from their investments, what the rate is going to be like. Hasn't been too great, even though the economy is recovering. But, uh, so that's where we are on pensions. Well, let me just yeah. talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Senator Jay Corman, the uh, majority leader, Republican in the, in, the, in the Senate, has said for the last couple of years that this is his priority and he has said uh, expressed his frustration that the administration is not dealing with it uh, you know there have, been, there have been a lot of predictions that because the budget was so tight this year that we could have another well past uh, July 1st uh, budget uh, deadline that we wouldn't hit that deadline I mean maybe it's too soon to tell I'm just kind of g- getting a sense of the mood from you of um, is not doing a whole lot about pensions, uh, not doing what Republicans want enough to hold up a a budget uh, being passed on time or close to being passed on time. Well, it certainly could be. Republicans have made it very clear. And as you said, Jake Corman, this has been his big talking point that we need to do something about pensions. Um, And they have indicated that they would like that to be part of this budget. Whether or not they're going to come up with a plan that actually like, pays down the deficit, whether Wolf will sign it. Wolf has indicated that he would sign um, various Republican-sponsored plans that are kind of nebulously in the works. But uh, there's going to be a lot of debate over this. This isn't something that they're going to pass easily. So, I mean, if pensions are wrapped up in the budget, if that stays consistent, if the Republicans don't like go back on that, then, yeah, it, we could definitely see. I mean, I don't want to say we're going to have a budget standoff, but it's also, I will say, uh, this is... Budget standoffs technically, they do tend to happen more in non-election years. And this is 2017 is not an election year. So we could see some arguments for a while. It's an issue that has to be dealt with sometime in a meaningful way, not just on the state level, the municipal level. School districts are, you know, really worried about it. So, you know, that's something we'll cover uh, a whole lot. It's not the sexiest issue in the world, as I say, but it is one that is very, very important to the taxpayers of this state. Um, we only have a about two minutes left, Katie. One thing uh, that in, in, in the budget hearings, uh, corrections, and there's been a real sea change in uh, kind of the direction of where we're going with corrections, and that includes budgets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the corrections department has been under pressure to cut costs from the Wolf administration, and they've been doing that in various ways. One of the biggest ones that we heard about recently was that they're closing a prison. They're closing the oldest state prison out in Pittsburgh. And um, that's going to save somewhere in the neighborhood of $80 million. So that's, you know, that's a, a cut. 
that they're making. Um, there's also, there, I mean, an independent report was done on the prison system, and um, that looked at some more savings that could be made, so they're working on that. We're also seeing a consolidation to the Department of Corrections and Department of Parole. So um, all these things, they, it all leads back to the budget. Well, when we talk about the sea change, and we've had uh, Secretary Wetzel, Secretary Corrections Wetzel, on the program before, and we talked about the closing of, the, of that prison. You know, it wasn't very long ago where Pennsylvania had plans to build more prisons, and you would hear from people invest that money in schools. And I don't know. I, I I guess one of the big questions many people have is safety, public safety. Talking about crime, talking about in about thirty seconds. How, sure. do, how, how does Secretary Wetzel address those things? He says, "Listen, from his perspective, from the administration's perspective, prison populations have fallen, um, so we don't need that many people in prison, and that's a good thing. And they're working on getting, you know, reducing recidivism rates and keeping more people out of prison." WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer. Katie, thanks for the insight. Thank you. Coming up tomorrow, it's a Smart Talk road trip. We hope to see you out there at the York Fairgrounds, York Expo Center. Uh, tomorrow, it's the uh, Pennsylvania Garden Show will start at 9 o'clock. Hope to see you there. Go to WITF.org and register.